0: This is such a phenomenal way to start a podcast. Having Sherilyn Eiffel, president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, be your first guest. Now, this is a win any way you look at it. But what was especially incredible about this conversation is that the way Sherilyn spoke about the transformational work of the Legal Defense Fund, the moment we're in as a society, And her thoughts about how we should be responding in this moment all spoke to the ethos of this podcast. Cheryl Lynn is the seventh president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, the nation's premier civil rights legal organization. LDF was founded in 1940 by legendary civil rights lawyer and later Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. Sherilyn served as an assistant counsel for LDF, litigating voting rights cases. She left LDF to teach at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, where in addition to teaching in the classroom, she litigated civil rights cases alongside her students for 20 years. Sherilyn returned to LDF to lead the organization in 2013, and has emerged as one of the nation's leading voices in the struggle for racial justice and equality. LDF is at the forefront of civil rights organizations challenging unconstitutional policing practices in cities around the country. She's also a critically acclaimed author and also serves on many nonprofit boards. This interview was recorded back in May 2020 when we were buried in the social justice and racial justice movement along with the pandemic, which I would argue we're still in now. And Sherilyn does such a masterful job of talking about the work of LDF and the work that's needed now more than ever, particularly in the United States. Sherilyn is very clear that LDF is unapologetically and intentionally focused on race recognizing that race has many other intersections. She also shares her advice for nonprofits and philanthropies to build better. I really want you to listen and absorb all of the information that Sherilyn shares about the state of the sector, society, and the immense power of being responsive. I think this is an episode that should be required listening. And with that, here is Sherilyn Eiffel. Hi, Sherilyn. It is so great to have you joining us for our Fast Bill Leader Series. I am really excited about our conversation today.
1: I am thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for reaching
0: out, and I'm looking forward to our talk. Hey, okay. to get us started, can you tell us about the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, your role there,
1: LDS Immediate Priority? Sure. So the NAACP Legal Defense Fund was formed by Thurgood Marshall in 1940. This year is our 80th anniversary, and we had planned a big gala, by the way, at Lincoln Center that had to be pulled down because of the pandemic. But we were originally part of the NAACP, and the Legal Defense Fund was created to do the kind of litigation work that you know we've become known for for 80 years. It's a pretty extraordinary organization. If you think about it being founded in 1940, and what it meant to create an organization of black lawyers in 1940 for the purpose of addressing you know, civil rights and for a of black people. Of course, the organization is multiracial and has been almost since its beginning, but it, at its core, it's an African-American legacy institution. And that institution being comprised of lawyers with the intention of using the legal system as a way of dismantling and undermining Jim Crow breaking the back of Jim Crow, Thurgood Marshall would say. It was a pretty extraordinary undertaking. This is an organization that has over 80 years hired the best and the brightest, you know, the most brilliant law students from the finest law schools in the country who have committed themselves to doing this work. And it has, as a result, become the incubator of so much talent. Many of the people leading the nation's civil rights organizations today are LDF alums. On my second go-round, I was an LDF attorney from 1988 to 1993. I was a voting rights attorney. But Vanita Gupta, who heads the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, is a former LDF attorney. Kristen Clark, who heads the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, is a former LDF attorney. Christina Swarns, who's the new head of the Innocence Project, was a few years ago our litigation director. You know, people like Alan Jenkins, who was the founder of the Opportunity Agenda, was an LDF attorney when I was at LDF. And then people who are just influencers out in the world. Maya Wiley was at LDF when I was a young lawyer at LDF. Kirsten Livingston, who's at Wellspring. Todd Cox. You know, it it really is the incubator. And for generations is the incubator. Duval Patrick, you know, former governor of Massachusetts and former, for a very brief period, presidential candidate. You know, Eric Holder was an intern when he was a student in law school. It's extraordinary the roster of people who have been trained at LDF. And that's really what we do is that we train leaders who are deeply grounded in the law of civil rights and and in the constitution and who have the highest level of skill. So that's the organization I'm privileged to lead. LDF separated from the NAACP in 1957. So we've been entirely separate organizations for a very long time, although people continue to confuse us. And I returned to LDF in 2013 to lead the organization. I had been away for 20 years, teaching law school and starting law clinics and being a civil rights lawyer in Baltimore, which was an extraordinary and important experience for my return. I was doing a lot of communications work as well. I had a regular column in The route. I joined the board of the Open Society Foundations and then chaired the board of the US programs of the Open Society Foundation. And so I was you know, spending a lot of time in the foundation world as well. And I brought all that back to LDF at what I thought was a critical moment. I recognized the need for LDF to refresh itself in many ways and to be responsive to what I think had been seismic shifts that happened in this country in the 80s and the 90s that had never really been attended to by civil rights organizations. And I was quite intentional about intending to lift the narrative on race and civil rights in the country and to be there to shape about race and not just to do the work of civil rights litigation and policy work. And, you know, it has been successful at a very, very difficult time in this country. I'm very proud of the role that LDF has played and the kind of leadership that people expect from us. You know, when there are police killings of unarmed African-Americans, when Donald Trump, you know, describes people in marching in Charlottesville as, you know, great good people on both sides, when Ben Carson really turns his back on the very, core of the Fair Housing Act, when Betsy DeVos turns her back on core of public education, people expect to hear from us. And we have a voice. We have a platform. And that platform, however, is just the thinnest part because underneath it is this extraordinary litigation work that we're doing in the courts where we're trying to make seismic structural change. Our work is focused almost entirely on the South. I would say 90% of our cases are in the South, although, you know, we've got housing discrimination cases that we've done in Detroit. We have a case right now that we filed in Cleveland, challenging water tax liens. We do a lot of work in Baltimore, although many people think of that as the South. We were part of the team that sued New York City, the NYPD for stop and frisk. So, you know, we do things around the country, but the core of the work remains in the South, really because, first of all, a majority of Black people still live in the South. And we are quite intentional that we are a racial justice organization. Uh, the term civil rights is quite expansive now, and we are quite unapologetically and quite intentionally focused on race, recognizing that race intersects with many other things. So at the intersection of you know, race and gender or race and sexual orientation or race and poverty, all of those things are intrinsically part of the work. But we lead with race because we think it is critical to continue to have that very intentional and clear conversation with the recognition that that focus of our work has over 80 years cascaded in such a way as to support the advancement of civil rights for all racial minorities, but actually not just racial minorities, for women, for members of the LGBTQ community. Everything that we do is to create a vision and an understanding of what rights and justice means in a way that recognizes the full humanity and dignity of every person. And so our work is never exclusive, but The people that we represent and the communities in whose voice we speak and whose history and reality we try to bring into those courtrooms every day are African-Americans. We're at trial right now, as a matter of fact. It's the first virtual trial, maybe the first virtual trial in the country, but certainly it's the first major civil rights trial that's a virtual trial. This is the case in Florida, trying to vindicate the rights of formerly incarcerated people to vote. But it's all being done remotely. And it's quite extraordinary and our lawyers have been preparing and they're working with lawyers from the ACLU and the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Brennan Center. But the voice that we bring is always quite unapologetically on behalf of African-American communities whose experience is particular and who suffer from the long history and contemporary reality of anti-Black racism that continues to be a part of this country. You asked also about kind of what the areas are that where we work. We work in four principal areas, voting and political participation, economic justice, which encompasses our work in housing and employment, education, and criminal justice. Those are the four pillars. And we often are doing work that's very particular within those areas. So our policing reform campaign is obviously very much part of our criminal justice work. But in that criminal justice work, we do a lot of work you know, challenging jury discrimination, challenging the death penalty. We have a number of clients on death row. We just filed suit uh, last week challenging conditions in the prisons in Arkansas on behalf of inmates who are exposed to COVID. But we also do other things that then we feel are relevant to all those areas. So we're really leaned into and trying to think through various ways to attack algorithmic bias, for example. But algorithmic bias shows up in criminal justice, you know, through risk assessments and gang databases. It shows up in employment. It shows up in housing and lending. You know, it shows up in all kinds of ways. So it touches all of the, so there are lots of things that we do that we feel touch each of those areas of work and don't fit neatly into any one category. They actually are truly intersectional and draw on all of the different pillars. But those four pillars are the ones that we think are the ones that unlock, potentially unlock, the door to equality and opportunity for African Americans.
0: Wow. So as president of this iconic organization, what is your advice to nonprofits that fundraise as a significant part of their budget? So in other words, what do you think
1: should be top of mind for them now, particularly during this time of uncertainty? Well, we've taken the position that we will not stop fundraising. <laughs> we recognize the realities of the current moment. So I think that's the first thing. One of the things that's so critical and important is that you have to be, let me let me see if I can describe it this way. When you're a litigator, as we are at LDF, and you're working on a case, a really important case, very often the, the core story is something that happened in the past, Right you know, you were at trial, they struck all the black people from your jury, you were convicted by an all white jury and so forth. It's something that happened in the past. We could be working on that case years later. You know, it didn't make its way to the Supreme Court for five years, right? Or you applied for a job and, you know, another person applied for the job and it's clear that there was racial discrimination at work or we have a whole line of cases in which we bring cases on behalf of people for whom criminal background screens are misused to deny employment. So when you're working on a case, although that case is really important and the relief you're seeking is relief that will change things for the future, not just for the individuals in the case, but will structurally change things for the future, the event itself happened in the past. And the reality of discrimination, for example, is that there are things happening today, like right now, while you and I are talking (laughs) that are important. And if you're not careful, you get so involved in your litigation that you're not responsive to what is you know, breaking the heart of your people in this moment, right? So one of the things that is vitally important is that every, you know, organization involved in work in this space has to be nimble enough to be responsive to what is breaking the heart of your people today, to what is cutting off opportunity for them today. When Eric Garner was choked on that street in Staten Island, even though we have many other cases <laughs> that we were dealing with, you have to be responsive to that. And as these videos began to come out, the consciousness of the country was raised about police violence against unarmed African-Americans. Even though this is work that had been kind of part of our docket for a very long time, we actually litigated the seminal case in that area, Tennessee versus Garner in the eighties. Even though it was kind of there, we had to create a policing reform campaign. We had to decide the time is right now and our communities have had it. And now we have to decide we're gonna take resources from across the complex to deal with this issue. So I think that nimbleness is what people need to see from us now. We had to do it after Trump was elected. Trump was elected. We were not expecting it. (laughs) Most people were not. But when he was elected, we knew what it would mean. We knew a Trump Justice Department is not going to be the Eric Holder and the Loretta Lynch Justice Department. And the Justice Department, with their tens of thousands of lawyers, is still the main law enforcement uh, apparatus of the country. And the attorney general is the main law enforcement officer, including of the nation's civil rights laws. So we knew we were losing a partner in our core work. And we can never have all the resources of the Department of Justice. But we decided that we would have to become a private attorney general. We would have to become a private DOJ. And we started fundraising from that perspective. And we were right. They're not bringing any voting rights cases. They have stopped doing pattern and practice investigations of police departments, right? So we had to then get into Tulsa and begin to work with that community to help raise consciousness about the need for policing reform there. We had to continue and intensify our work in North Charleston, where Walter Scott was shot in the back. That case may be over, but that community is crying out for you know, a real attention to the systemic police discriminatory issues in that. And so we've been working with them now for years on that in the hopes of, of putting together a case for the future. So we knew that COVID happens, same thing, absolute catastrophe for our community, super catastrophe, raising issues really of survival, right, for people. So even though we're working on this systemic structural change that presumes there is a tomorrow, our communities are facing the possibility that for some people there is no tomorrow. And so we had to layer on top of our work, we had to open a new front. So we focusing on the four areas that we know. You know, that's where we leaned in, right? I just told you about the case we filed in the Arkansas prison, right, on behalf of inmates who have pre-existing conditions, who suffer from asthma, heart disease, emphysema. You know, are not socially distanced, who have no masks, who have no PPE. You know, we really believe that what we are going to see out of the prisons is potentially the greatest catastrophe we are going to see around COVID in terms of illness, infection, and death. Disproportionately, these are our people. These are our brothers. These are our sons. These are our moms. These are our uncles. This is not separate from the Black community. We recognize with our education work, LDF still has about 40 desegregation cases that we monitor from the 1960s and from Southern jurisdictions. And we sometimes litigate as well. Issues arise and we use those cases to fight for equity for Black children in the South. And almost immediately when the school closures began, we started to inquire... About a variety of things. First of all, whether schools were going to continue providing nutritional support to kids. Now, we heard from a lot of jurisdictions, New York and others, they were going to continue to provide that support, and that was wonderful. We weren't sure about that in Southern jurisdictions, and a number of them said they were going to provide support, did it for a week, and then stopped. So in Louisiana, we had to really lean in. New Orleans was fine, but in St. where we work, In the rural South, St. Bernard Parish, St. John Parish, St. Martin Parish, St. Mary Parish, no, no nutritional support. The schools just cut it off. And so you have kids who are used to getting one meal or two meals a day and parents who are relying on that for their kids' nutrition suddenly from one day to the next are cut off from having any nutritional support. We tried working with the school districts to no avail. At the same time, in those same school districts, Many of them had just cut off instruction. Once school closures happened in early March, they just decided the school year was over and there would be no instruction. And we were beside ourselves. The thought that our children would have no instruction from March to September, that's like the old sharecropping system when they used to take Black kids out of school you know, to bring in the crops. This was so horrifying to us that we again began pushing those school districts around these issues without much success. Some of them agreed to do distance learning, but the distance all online. of black households in Louisiana have no computer. So there had to be worksheets that are mailed. There have to be worksheets that are dropped off. When you say distance learning, everybody thinks, you know, you and I know what that means and we're doing it right now. But that's not the reality for nearly 20% of black families in Louisiana. So we leaned in with all the school districts to no avail. And finally, we put the governor on blast. We did a letter uh, that we released publicly and began to really put the pressure on. And he agreed to meet with us man, meet, I'm saying in air quotes, because obviously it was virtual. And two weeks ago, you know, we had an hour and a half long phone call in the morning and it was critical. We were on the phone with the governor of Louisiana, John Bell Edwards, and the superintendent of schools. And it was interesting because obviously they knew about our letter and they had reached out to the parishes who all told them, yes, we are, of course, we're going to provide. So of course we're providing food. But we knew we had our clients. We had, we had just talked with our parents that week. And so we were able to tell them it ain't happening. You know? That even where some places are providing food, parents can't get to it. There's no public transportation. So the whole point is that, you know, when your kids had school, the school bus picked them up and took them to school and that's where they ate. How are they supposed to get the food? We documented the percentage of families that don't have, Black families that don't have cars and they're not able to get to the food. And we documented the whole distance learning piece. You could hear in the phone call that the governor and the superintendent were alarmed and it was clear that they were learning as we were speaking. And that afternoon, the governor in his announcement that the schools would be closed for the rest of the school year, issued a proclamation requiring that there be distance learning, high-tech and low-tech, and that every school district was expected to fulfill the obligation to provide nutritional support for children. And then we started to monitor that after the governor's announcement to make sure that that was happening. We just did it in Leeds City, Alabama, where we were, the school district was under a DSEG order, not serving food. They just announced on April 2nd, no more food will be served until further notice. We went into court, by into court, I mean, (laughs) we filed papers in court, the judge held a virtual hearing on the phone, uh, I guess, 10 days ago, and last week, Friday night, said this violates the desegregation order that requires equity, you must begin food service again, and it just began again on Tuesday. So we used the docket that we had to address what we knew were immediate critical COVID needs for our children, which was nutritional support and education. We have been the leading voice on the issue of ending water shutoffs and utility shutoffs during the pandemic as part of our housing discrimination work. We have been working over the last few years on the issue of water affordability because we did a report in which we documented the way in which water tax liens are leading disproportionately to loss of black homeownership. So black people unable to afford their water bill, don't pay the water bill. The tax lien is either sold to a private party or just sold or taken over by the city. And then if you don't pay it, your home's put up for foreclosure. And so we began to document the number of Black people losing their homes through that process. We did a lot of work in Baltimore in ending water tax lien foreclosures, a lot of work in Detroit. Even Flint was prepared to foreclose on 7,000 families three summers ago, where there's not even potable water because of water tax liens. They finally overturned that law. We just filed suit in Cleveland challenging their water tax liens. So we were very clear about the issue of water. Pandemic hit. We were deeply concerned. We first asked no evictions. We knew that the federal government had said there would be no foreclosures, but many black people are renters. We still don't have a moratorium on eviction. So we've been working state by state, city by city, trying to put that pressure on. But we also knew that water shutoffs and electricity shutoffs would be detrimental, particularly in a pandemic in which we are asking everybody to wash their hands all the time and in which there are school closures. And so schoolchildren are at home and we're sending children home in the condition in which there's no running water and in which there's no electricity. So we have been pushing the National Conference on Mayors, the National Governors Association, going state by state. We're actually starting a, launching a shaming campaign online later this week, going state by state, shaming those jurisdictions that have allowed water shutoffs to continue. We're asking jurisdictions to re-engage water where possible. Washington, D.C. is doing that. Massachusetts is doing that. Turn the water back on if you really want people to be able to deal with this pandemic. And most of all, don't create a public safety issue for children who you're requiring to stay home, but you're also not suspending evictions. So you're telling everybody stay home, but you're also allowing people to be put out of their home, or you're telling people to stay home and you're allowing them to be home without water, without running water and without electricity. So we've been really, we're still grappling with that issue and continuing to lean into that issue. And then of course voting. I gotta say, I feel forever changed by Wisconsin. It represents the failure of every level of government for African-American people. I wrote a piece about it in Slate. I'm happy to send it to you called Never Forget Wisconsin. And I I just think it's so, you know, the piece really talks about the images of people standing in line with the masks on and how it's a snapshot of American failure. But I also call it a snapshot of the deep nobility of Black people who showed their determination to be full citizens to participate in the political process. And so on the theory of Never Forget Wisconsin, we sued in Arkansas. We just filed suit in South Carolina demanding the extension of absentee ballot opportunities. We're filing another suit this week, but I can't tell you where it is, but in another Southern state, and then in another Southern state the following week. We are looking to November and we are very clear that we want to make sure that there are multiple opportunities for voting for our people. We're not saying only mail-in voting because there are Black people who want to vote in person. But in order for Black people to vote in person, we have to, we cannot have to make a choice between our health and our citizenship. And so that requires a full menu of things. First of all, we need poll workers. A lot of the reason there were so few polling places in Milwaukee on that election day is because so many poll workers called out, understandably. Most poll workers, including in our community, are elderly. We don't want to risk their health either. So that means that we need to be training additional poll workers this summer, younger poll workers. Poll workers have to be trained in how to manage themselves in this pandemic. We have to be providing to poll workers all of the PPE that they need. The polling places themselves, we have to be able to assure people that they are wiped down and fully clean. We have to be able to provide PPE at the polling place for voters who come without it, who don't have a mask or who don't have gloves. All of that is essential. We have to expand early voting so that we undermine long lines by having a longer voting period and more opportunities to vote. We're also really encouraging our community to be more prepared to vote, to not go into the voting booth and for the first time be reading the ballot. you got to download that thing Sunday night. you got to know what all the bond questions are, because that's what makes you take long, standing in the voting place. You don't want to be standing there for 15 minutes during a pandemic. You want to get in, vote, and get out. But then also distance voting, and that means extending the period for absentee ballot requests, extending the period for absentee ballot returns. That was the issue in Wisconsin, that the Supreme Court wouldn't allow the extended time to return the absentee ballots. It means increasing online registration so that people can register online. It means ensuring that people really know that they have to take time to do that process, to order an absentee ballot, to have it come to their house, to send it back in, to have it be counted. So we're really serious about leaning into our communities in August and September about preparing to vote. You're not gonna be able to just wake up on November 2nd and decide, hey, I really feel like I want to vote tomorrow. It's not that kind of scene anymore. Because if you're gonna vote in person, you gotta have your PPE and you need to be ready. If you're gonna vote distance, you have to have ordered your absentee ballot and you have to have sent it in and so forth. So all of our voting work is really focused around making sure that that full menu is available so that we can ensure that every eligible African-American voter can participate in the political process and vote. And then lastly, of course, is the census and ensuring that people participate in the census online. Um, So everything that we're doing about stay at home, we just did a joint statement with the leaders of every black church denomination uh, that was released last Friday when Governor Kemp's, Kemp's order came out reopening the state, basically telling our people to stay home. And it was, you know, civil rights leaders and black church denomination leaders saying, this ain't the time, you know, you need to stay home, prioritize your health, prioritize your family. But we ended the statement by saying, and while you're at home, Register to vote and make sure that you fill out the census. So that's a long way of answering your question. That what I say to nonprofits is you've got to be responsive to the needs of your people in the moment. And you've got to figure out a way to be doing if you're like an organization like mine that does structural change or whatever are your long-term imperatives, have to be happening at the same time that you are responsive to what your people need today. So that's the first, you know. So keep fundraising. Make sure that the work you're doing is responsive to what is happening in the moment. Don't give up your, your structural work, but make sure it's responsive to what's happening in the moment. Invest in your communications. This is the only lifeline we have to the people we represent, to our donors, to our supporters. So this is no time to skimp on your comms. You got to invest in your comms. You have to have the apparatus to invest in your comms. Reassure your people. Take care of your staff. One of the things I'm proudest of is that at LDF, we've just been prudent over the years. And so, you know, we're not facing layoffs. We're not facing anything, any immediate, you know, catastrophe. Obviously we have lost our major fundraising event and so forth. And so like everybody else, we're reeling, but the ability for our people to focus on their work and not have to focus on whether they're going to get a paycheck is vitally important. And so make sure that you're, you're doing your best to reassure your staff and your people We have been increasing our all-staff meetings. We do them now every two weeks. So just trying to increase that communication with the staff. I'm regularly sending emails to the staff. We created a newsletter of our COVID-19 work because our staff wants to know, what are we doing in this pandemic? They want to feel that they are speaking into the moment. We acknowledge how frightened we all are, right? This is the first time that we're doing the work in which not only are we worried for our clients, but we're worried for ourselves, our families, our friends, our peers, and to acknowledge that reality. We have provided our staff, you know, we provide them with lots of wellness links and other resources to help kind of navigate this period. And then just keep talking to your funders. Make sure from you and that they know what you're doing. If asked, they should feel like they know what you're doing. There shouldn't be a presumption. And ask for advice. When the pandemic struck and things started to close and the stock market tanked, I was calling people saying, not for money. You know, I was calling foundation leaders to say, tell me how you're thinking about this moment. This is a moment of crisis leadership. I want to make sure that I'm being the right kind of leader. Tell me, uh, this is what I'm thinking. This is, these are the steps I'm planning to take. This is what I'm doing with my senior team. This is about, this is a leadership moment also. And foundations and donors are not just about money. They're about counsel and support and advice from moments just like this when we need other leaders to help us think through how we lead in a time that none of us have ever, like, like none of us have ever faced.
0: No, I, I really like your response for a variety of reasons. I think at the core, it goes back to exactly what you said, which is be responsive to the thing that is breaking the heart of your people today. Be consistent in doing the work. And Another reason that I really like it is that you're providing advice that you yourself um, are following, right? And you're providing examples and context behind this is how it's playing out for us and here's how we're doing it. And the last piece um, that I really like about it is that it's practical, right? You're Mm -hmm. talking about just picking up the phone and asking for advice and, and strategic counsel and being able to partner. And so I think that is really sound advice for nonprofits, particularly those that are Fundraising, and if I were to say to you, then Cheryl, let's look at the other side of the conversation and look at the funders. What's the advice that you would have for funders beyond, you know, give more money, for example? But what's the advice would you what advice would you provide um, for them to support nonprofit sustainability both during and after this crisis?
1: Yeah, some foundations are already doing things like, you know, providing webinars and just support on various aspects of how we manage this moment, providing free social media training or communications training to organizations that really may not be sophisticated in that area. You know, one thing I haven't, I mean, a a couple of foundations have individually done this. I love the pledge that, you know, many of the foundations took, but I just think we should be freed up from reporting at this moment. It's extremely onerous particularly if you're not a first-time recipient and the foundation knows you, the time that we spend doing reports is time that we could be spending finding additional gifts and we're all financially pressed and looking to raise more money. And that means that we need to find new foundations or we need to find new areas of work. And I would say every report should be dinged until next spring and like (laughs) give us another year. Not because we don't have a lot to report, but just because the work of the report, you know, takes time away from some of the other stuff that we're doing. I think, you know, those foundations that have reached out and convened, you know, small groups of us to ask us the ch- just the challenges we're facing as leaders. I mean, it's something I tremendously appreciate. We are people. There are things we just, we cannot show our staff our own fears. We have to be reassuring. And so we actually need safe spaces where we can convene and talk about some of these issues you know i would say providing you know a window into the things that you know about what the financial outlook looks like providing i think you know experts who can address us as leaders or even address our staff about covid or other aspects of this crisis really providing you know support beyond the financial support just recognizing that this as i suggested is a moment that none of us have ever experienced before and the expectation that leaders will just kind of walk into this with some magic ability to navigate all the aspects of it it seems to me just false so i would say that especially for your you know your core donors to just be offering that kind of support is really important foundations are their endowments are taking a hit too so i understand that but i think just deciding that you're going to sustain with the organizations is absolutely critical because all of us recognize we're not going to be making more than we made in the past right so But we've got to be able to sustain. As I said, I just advise people to open up a whole nother front of work to address this crisis and obviously to be efficient and marry it with your existing work, which is what we're trying to do. But we're not working less. I'm definitely working more. Everyone else is working more because the kind of work we do, you know, the courts have not closed, right? The Supreme Court still deciding cases. We still have our virtual trial. We still have a brief due in the Harvard affirmative action case. We still filing cases. We're still doing all that stuff and we still gotta get you know, food for these kids. So not one bit of the work has stopped and yet a whole nother layer of work has been placed on top of it. So we have to be able to hold our staff. You know, we have to be able to just maintain. And so I would really encourage foundations to bet on their grantees this year. You just have to do it. You just have to do it because I do think this is a potentially catastrophic moment, not only in terms of just survival, but in terms of our democracy. Because what has accompanied the pandemic are all of the threats that always accompany catastrophes like this, which is the power grab, you know, and the suffering of those who are most marginalized and the attempt to hold on to power, you know, by those who led us during this crisis. Those are all things that always happen. So we are in a moment of tremendous, tremendous democratic peril. And to my mind, you know, I I call a civil rights work, democracy work. That's what we do. And this is not the time to imagine for one second that we can skimp on the need to lean into not only protecting this democracy, but being like aggressive and affirmative in our work. And many of the things that are happening now, we will need to think through now how to maintain. So people understand now that people have to be released from prison. Okay, well, we've been talking about that for years. So how do we post-pandemic sustain that narrative? We've been talking about the need to extend voting opportunities. Okay, now many people do get why there have to be be extensive mail-in ballots and more early voting. And okay, how do we carry that forward? So that becomes the new normal. There's a lot of conversation about the new normal in the context of social distancing and flying and taking cruises, but we need to make the expansion of some of these areas in terms of civil rights, the new normal also. And that's gonna take organizing, advocacy, litigation, and empowering our communities to be able to speak and demand that they want that new normal.
0: Well, you've provided really practical advice for both nonprofits and funders, and we even talked about some of the practices that you're recommending funders stop. So with all of that in mind, what do you wish we did less of as a sector, and what should we do more of?
1: Well, I think we're in so much peril that I honestly cannot think of anything that we need to be doing less of, to be honest. And I would have said this before the pandemic also. I have continued to believe that we just still weren't, even before the pandemic, we're not enough for the moment. That's why we're in so much trouble right now. We just, you know, it's more. It's got to be more. What do we need to be doing more of? I think people are listening right now. and So we should really be paying attention to increasing the touch, the ability of us to touch and communicate with people in- the people we represent in communities around the country. It's just vitally important right now that people feel that they are part of something. And the things that we normally do where we meet and we march and we congregate or people knock on doors, those are not things that can happen. People also need to feel that see that people are fighting for them. So they need that communication needs to get to them because this can be a really despairing moment also. So we really need to be talking to people so that they can see what their own power is. And I think the ability to move quickly, everything's going so fast that if we could just increase everyone's ability to do rapid response, it would be awesome. We're all sitting here and the post office is not funded. Do you know what I mean? Like that's a catastrophe that, you know, just has to be dealt with. And so just new things arise all the time. And we have to, you know, I'm very concerned about Black businesses and what's going to be happening in our community with with the stimulus and how badly It has done in being accessible to black small black business owners and really it's about mom and pop businesses you know barbershops that won't survive beauty parlors that won't survive nail salons that won't survive that are in our community what's the plan i've talked about this in the context with back black churches who are some of the biggest property owners in the african-american community let's leave aside the spiritual piece i'm just talking about as property owners you know, the emergency is regarded as over and the foreclosure crisis is over and the forbearance is lifted. Those folks aren't going to have money. The churches are, the black church relies on people to come in every Sunday and put something in the plate and nobody's been coming in. And every church will tell you that online does not approximate that. So we're about to see, unless something is done, a kind of catastrophic property loss. In our community, which will increase gentrification. Think about some of these churches and the land that they sit on, where they're located. When I think about something like Mother Emmanuel in downtown Charleston, if you've ever been there, where the Charleston nine were, were killed. It's right downtown, huge church right there at the beginning of the big shopping street. You know, not a black community around it anymore, but I mean that's prime property, you know. So I think we need a little bit more creativity around, you know, the exercise I do, which is I try to do it in the increments of one year, three years, and five years. When I look back at this time, what am I going to be sorry we didn't do? And one of those pieces, I think, is to imagine what strengths will still exist, what anchors will still exist in the Black community, and have we protected them? Well, I know that I really
0: like talking about being creative and how can organizations show up um, in that way, particularly as they think about their own planning and their own strategies. But also know that the focus of many nonprofits is often on that programmatic strategy and on the direct asks or the fundraising pieces. And I wanted to talk about infrastructure and raise a question with you, which is, is LDF thinking about building infrastructure during this time? And if it is, how is it thinking about uh, building that infrastructure? And uh-huh. Do you mean fundraising infrastructure or? I, I mean, your organizational infrastructure, the foundation, the organizational foundation that you have to do that programmatic work, to be programmatically creative, thinking about how you're setting up your boards, your operations, your governance structures. And if you're thinking about that now, how does that thinking shift for
1: infrastructure after the pandemic? I like to say that, you know, we have the unique experience of kind of being a little bit ahead of the curve because we were talking about these very issues and really beginning to make shifts, make shifts in our board. Uh, We had planned to open a Southern office, which you know, obviously very few people are opening bricks and mortar at this point, but it may be a remote office. But we understood the need to be closer, physically closer to engage with our communities, to be able to speak more directly to them. So we already understood that. We had increased our support for our internal think tank, the Thurgood Marshall Institute, so that we could do more of our own research and really disseminate direct research to our community. We just had done a big comms buildup so that we could increase our comms capacity. So in some ways we had kind of, not knowing that the pandemic was coming, but feeling that for all the reasons I told you before, we're in this critical democratic moment. But we have been talking about just who we are and how we show up in the space. We've been thinking about our own branding because that really is important to grabbing the attention of the people that we represent. And just building collaborations has been really, really critical to our work. But I do think that, you know, what I was describing about like Black businesses, that's kind of why we have our Thurgood Marshall Institute is because like we want to spend some time learning. And that's what the Institute is designed to do is to help us learn. And one of the things I think is critical in this moment is figuring out what we need to learn to be able to come up with solutions that actually work. And that means that we need to be able to convene people to say, you know, here's what we don't know and here's what we need to learn in order to make this work. So I'd like to see more of that happening. The truth is this is exhausting. You know, we're all in this box all day. And so we also have to be a little bit kind to ourselves, you know, in terms of how difficult this is. I actually find that where I'm shifting to right now is some solitary time to study and to read and to write in my four waking hours that I have that I'm not working because I think it's important to try to diagnose this moment and understand what it is we're in. And I think too many of us are, we're doing so much that we can't see it. And, you know, I'm a big legal historian. And so this all happens within an ecosystem and trying to understand the ecosystem. I'm very interested in what my profession is doing. Like that's the kind of creative thing that we're not talking about in the civil rights space, but I'm talking about it. What has happened to the legal profession and the need to activate the profession in a way that brings, that resets some of what I think has been eroded over the past few months. And that really is critical to us and infrastructure that we need to be able to do civil rights legal work. So I think being able to kind of have a little drawback time to, to see the whole instead of just see the pieces that we're working on or the pieces that are in our face or the pieces that Trump has served up for the day is one of the biggest challenges of this moment. But we're in, there is, there is the earth is shifting beneath the ecosystem of civil rights in this country. And we need, to be able to see that shift, to figure out how to take advantage of of it. So I do think that it's vital that we spend some time doing the intellectual work of change.
0: Sherilyn, this conversation has been so powerful. And I want to ask you a question to help us continue to build knowledge through books and people we should learn from or about to close us out. So what book do you think we should read next or what artist
1: do you think we should be paying attention to? Well, I'll just tell you, I'm on my own curriculum right now, and so it's not one book. But after the 2016 election, like literally a week after, <laughs> I was on a panel with the great civil rights historian, Taylor Branch, and with Isabel Wilkerson, the author of The Warmth of Other Suns. And Isabel, who's become a friend, you know, suggested at that event, was held at University of Maryland, She suggested that we were entering the second nadir or nadir. The nadir was the period from 1880 to 1920 or so described as the nadir by the historian Rayford Logan as kind of the worst period for black people after slavery. You know, I resisted her a little bit, but I kind of knew she was right. (laughs) So anyway, you know, since the first of the year, I've been really asking the question. And what did they do in the nadir? Because there's never a time where we did nothing. And in fact, much of what happened in the Nadir was the foundation upon which powerful shifts in civil rights ended up happening in this country, you know, and I'm writing about, trying to write about this now. So I'm reading, I'll get you my Nadir reading. (laughs) So, I mean, I guess, you know, the first one is is this one is Black Reconstruction by W.E.B. Du Bois. That's like the most important. That's kind of the Bible. Two other books that are really, I find really illuminating also. One is Rayford Logan, the one who, created the term the Nadir, the betrayal of the Negro from Rutherford B. Hayes to Woodrow Wilson. And then Dixon Bruce's Black American writing from the Nadir, the evolution of a literary tradition, 1877 to 1915. I'm very interested in how writers wrote in that period because I'm always interested in what artists do during these dark periods because I think these are always periods of very important high art. So for me, it's a bit of studying and a bit of learning. And it turns out, at least from my you know, sneak peek of, my, of the piece I'm writing is about the institutions that were created in the nadir, the NAACP, the Deltas. The, you know All of these institutions that we tend to then had the platform to help advance the civil rights movement actually were created in this period. In this period when black people were really just at the very edge and at the very bottom. So the question for us is it may not be that that is what we must do, but the question is what must we do? There is building that has to happen in this period. So that's what I'm working on.
0: Well, I've definitely added some books now to my book list, so thank my reading list. So thanks so much for sharing that and I look forward to reading your piece when it comes out Mm -hmm. and you've just shared some incredible takeaways and gems throughout this conversation that I think leaders can implement into their own organizations to help them build bravely. So I want to thank you again for your insights and your time today, Sherilyn.
1: Thank you so much. This was great. I really enjoyed talking to you. Yes, definitely.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Nonprofit Buildup. To access the show notes, additional resources, and information on how you can work with us, please visit our website at BuildupAdvisory.com. We invite you to listen again next week as we share another episode about scaling impact by building infrastructure and capacity in the nonprofit sector. Keep building bravely.